0: So retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History?
1: Well, Monday is the anniversary of the first riot of the Luddites.
0: Then on Tuesday, we unearthed the mad coincidence of the day two different Dennis the Menaces made their comic strip debuts. On Wednesday, the day the Spanish conquered the Last Maya Kingdom.
1: Thursday was the day Colonel Sanders sued KFC.
0: And on Friday, we recall how Vincent van Gogh's sister-in-law made his name. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com.
0: Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, Lads, 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 viral content kings, Lad Bible, stage a takedown of their rivals, the vice journalist pranking broadcasters, and a revival of the row over unpaid work at big media companies. Plus, our panel on Riz Ahmed's views on representation and whether James Harding can raise the money required for what he calls a new kind of open journalism. And in the Media quiz, we peruse some headlines about the autumn's biggest TV shows. It's all to come in today's media podcast. And joining us today is Stephen D. Wright, Managing Director of Kerfuffle TV. Uh, welcome back to the show. Hello. Um, you've created a lot of uh, TV formats in your life. Um, they all have amazing names. Yes. <laughs> what are you working on at
3: the moment? The, well, the most amazing of all, Celebrity Call Centre. Celebrity a, Call so you know what it is. A show all about celebrities in a call centre. It's a very sort of simple format. But a very good show, and it comes out on Channel Four on Monday the twenty-second at ten o'clock. Okay, they're presumably not selling Admiral
0: Insurance in a office it's block in Cardiff.
3: Not that far away <laughs> from that, because you know they are doing calls non-stop from people, members of the public. So, but it, it gets straight to the heart of the of the kind of celebrity and 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 shows whether they've got empathy or wisdom or whether they're in a bad mood. It's it's very entertaining, but it's also very real. So, it's members of the public calling up for advice. M- members of the public calling in with advice, questions, problems, dilemmas. And it's that thing of do do these celebrities know what they're talking about? Do they have wisdom and do they have empathy?
0: And do they have to upsell them the Ticketmaster Priority Scheme? (laughs) (laughs) That's what I had to do when I worked in a call centre. (laughs) And also joining us this week is making a welcome return to the show, the CEO of Shoutout Podcast Network and host of careers podcast Wannabe, Imreal Morgan.
1: Hi Holly, how are you? I'm
0: very well, thank you. What is on your to-do list this autumn?
1: Um, I am actually working on the Spotify SoundUp Bootcamp, which is a all-expenses-paid five-day intensive workshop for women of colour from across the country. And it has been an insane week of planning. Um, But it starts on the 5th to the 9th of November. So I'm really excited.
0: Okay, so what do these women get to learn to do?
1: They learn how to record, edit, sound design. Um, They learn about the podcast industry that they may be entering into. They learn how to pitch. They get a massive prize at the end, which is basically having their podcast made, all expenses paid. Excellent.
0: Was that something you came up with and pitched to Spotify, or something they came to you with?
1: No, they came to us with it. Uh, They launched it in the US last, or earlier this year, actually, around June. And like eighteen thousand applications came through the US one. We did not get quite as many for the UK, but the population size is quite different for women of color here. Um, But yeah, they had a massive success with it. Like the three winners got like a ride up in L, and they had just a phenomenal time, so we're just really honoured to be the designing the UK edition. Okay, it does
0: sound glamorous but where is it happening? In is Soho
1: it? in the fanciest okay. hotel. Like, oh, okay. It's so nice. I
0: was <laughs> expecting Holiday Inn Express in Watford, weren't you? <laughs> I was planning yeah. to
1: put them there, but, yeah. you know, they had other plans. <laughs> Good,
0: okay. Uh, right, on to the week's news then, and let's start with Lads versus Lads. As Viral Video King's Lad Bible announced a takeover of rival clickbait masters UniLad. Uh, they've got history in early October October, Lad Bible bought up a substantial part of Unilad's debt, which then gave them a say on what happened next. And this deal makes Lad Bible the largest social video publisher ever. Uh, Imriel, I'm guessing you're not a natural <laughs> Lad Bible consumer. Um, no. However, you know you're not a million miles away in the industry. What is it that they do so well?
1: they create really great viral content on Facebook. I think we've all scrolled through and seen one of these ridiculous videos that they create. But I also think they've done a really phenomenal job in... Changing the conversation around what it means to be a lad, and also creating content that is for men that is cares about their self care and their well being. So I think they're doing a really great job of kind of steering the direction of that conversation for toxic masculinity and patriarchy, but still being somewhat offensive because it's lad bible and uni lad after all. But I did I did used to consume it quite a bit at university.
0: Oh really? Okay. Yeah. What was your? Do you remember a favourite viral?
1: No, it no? was still like a really crap website. Ice cream melting on Mercedes or something? It was just so offensive. It was just about like <laughs> girls that guys have shagged and like did really horrible things to.
0: <laughs> Stephen, do you believe Lad Bible when they say they're going to keep these two brands separate? That they're going to still have Unilad in two years' time?
3: Uh, that's, that's a sort of cynical, uh, doubting response from me. I, I think that uh, they will eat them up and spit them out, basically. I think... There's not really. I think the the confusion of the two names enough Mm. Mm. is, is, you know, means that there's not going to be two separate lads on Facebook. It's going to be one, and it's going to be one only. But they're basically the same. So from a consumer's perspective, it means nothing. You know, it's just the same old, same old coming out all the time. So as long as they can make money out of it, they'll keep going. But I think we're going to say goodbye to uh, UniLad. Yeah, I mean, it's a, this is a... Farewell, stri- Unilad, I think. R.I.P. <laughs> Unilad. The missing song from The Sound <laughs> of Music. Uh,
0: yeah, I mean, they, I think Stephen's right, isn't he, that in the public imagination, they're the same company, really. If you I look didn't at know their, there was a difference. Right. I mean, if you look at their top rating story from 2018, it's the same story across both websites. Mm-hmm. It was a guy who had a tattoo of his brother with Down syndrome put on his arm, and that's the thing that rated on both of them.
1: That's cute.
0: Um, so for people who are working for Unilad right now, Uh, do you think they should be nervous?
1: I don't think so. I think the smart thing to do would be to absorb their talent and actually try to uh, bring them all under one and unite them as a force because clearly they're Equally talented. Um, they've all done phenomenal work and managed to kind of take over Facebook. So it would be silly to kind of waste talent and human potential in that way.
0: But this is one of the ways that Unilad got into debt, though, isn't it? They have a lot of
3: staff up there in Manchester.
0: A I mean, lot-
1: not all of the staff, but you know, just the talented ones. Yeah, well, that's the difference, <laughs> isn't it?
3: That's yeah, the- my, my problem with it is how do they make money? Yes. This huge amount of people, and I'm not, not doubting the talent and the cleverness and the quickness of the ideas and all the rest of it, but all of these sort of startup internets or virals where they churn the stuff out, you know, hour by hour by hour, how are they making money? Because I don't know, I can't, that's how I, that's how I look at this is, is this financially viable? And I don't think it is.
0: Well, the the revenues were, as far as we can tell, about £25 million across both companies. That's combined revenue for Unilad and Ladbible. Um, you know, that's not insufficient, but obviously, insufficient, that's not insignificant, but obviously...
3: Now, how are they paying 200 staff? How can you pay 200 staff?
1: Or are they not paying 200 staff? Is that a lot? I'm really bad at business.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the media. (laughs) Well, it shows that there's money to be made from clickbait, but perhaps not enough to support original content being the clickbait. I mean, that's the bottom line, isn't it? They can get people in, but they can't make the content unless Mm. they pay for
3: people to make it. Well, unless it's students where you are exploiting them with no money. So. I mean, that's what the Mail Online does, does it not? That, you know, they're, they're bringing in loads and loads of people working for kind of work experience. Ch- doing more or less the same thing, a lot of the same virals. That's, that's my other problem with the Uni Lad, Lad Bible thing. is it's It doesn't necessarily say distinctively Uni Lad, Lad Bible to me. It's it's Reddit, it's Mail Online, it's mm. everything. Mm. They're all the same. It's all the same kind of pool of virals. You know, the virals are good. They're entertaining. I'll still watch a good one and I'll share one that's, that's really funny. But it just seems to be really... Was it muddy water?
0: Well, it's kind of. I guess they got in there early in designing a new source for Facebook, didn't they? That was their USP at the time. No one else had created something for students on Facebook that was that big before. But now, as Stephen says, it's something that brands can create if they want to.
1: Yeah, I think there isn't a lot of original content anymore, though, and I think that's where you're seeing the Netflixes and the HBO really stepping up and creating like a more premium offering. Um, I don't know what the place of viral content is going to be. I think even working in podcasting makes it really difficult to understand how to make it a sustainable and viable business. So it's it's going to be an interesting one, but I don't think they should get rid of all of the beauty lad stuff. I just don't think so. I'm just really nice like that
3: how much do you take
0: on board lessons from viral content when you're making telly
3: Stephen well this is where I'm making another sneery face for any listeners out there um the cleverness of the ideas is brilliant, you know, and you can always you can and you can nearly always spot a real kind of genius at work, which there are the odd one or two you know people like Cassette Boy or people like that you know they become sort of uh, this the sort of standard a lot of the stuff you become even more sort of cynical about because a lot of it's sort of faked or copies of copies of you know so you know i mean I would hope they would go on to make great shows and things like that, proper shows i e more than a minute or two minutes or whatever with scripting. Because talent should be allowed to kind of flourish, but that. But do,
0: does their technique influence what you do? I, mean, I was thinking about those titles I mentioned earlier. You've always had sort of eye-catching titles in the tele programmes you've made, but that's a very online thing now, isn't it? Mm, yeah, I mean, you, know, you won't believe what happens when whatever.
3: Yes, I mean it's, we're, we're all of the, we're all in the same pond. You know what I mean? It's it's and you know these are sort of minnows compared to the big sharks, but they will grow. But it's, it's it's the biggest problem for me is just how do you get paid? Because if you are a brilliant little uh, designer or photographer or director or whatever writer, you know, coming up with stuff, how do you survive that two or three years before you get your sitcom or your film or your screenplay or your whatever? It's you know that it's great if you're 22 and you're, you're sharing a flat and you don't really need that much money and you can churn out stuff every five minutes. But to me, that's exploitation, um, and it's not necessarily a, a, a sort of a a viable career where you can actually end up, you know, having somewhere to live and, you know, and a garden and a cat. OK,
0: <laughs> let's talk about the vice journalist who got his fake restaurant to the top of the TripAdvisor charts. Do you remember this story? He has struck again, uh, this time pranking broadcasters by sending stand-ins to do interviews for him. Emery, um, what happened here?
1: Well, he just decided that he didn't want to do media appearances anymore and just sent strangers to appear as him, which I think is absolutely hilarious. <laughs> well,
0: sometimes his blood relations as well. His brother yeah, did stand in for him he sent his brother to Australia,
1: was... right? I yeah. think that's what happened. Um, and they gave very serious interviews. He's gone to like fashion week and like put in fake designers. He's just a really good laugh. I think it's quite funny. I do question whether other people from other backgrounds who do pranks get the same kind of notoriety as him, but that's my only reservation, but I still think it's quite a funny thing to do. I'm going to examine, the I'm gonna have to examine... scamming. I'm going to have to examine
0: that comment a little bit more yeah. what other people from what other backgrounds I mean not I think
1: well you, I, I watched the Good Morning Britain interview that the real Uber did um, I think so it this was is Uber Butler one. that's his name Uber Butler you
0: think it's his real it, yeah, we don't know I'm, I'm not <laughs>
1: sure anymore um, and I, I can't remember the host it wasn't Piers um, but he was like it, you scammed people you scammed people he was really harsh on it and I think like scamming in general is kind of frowned upon um, and it was quite inflammatory language I think and I think when we think of scammers would a Nigerian prankster got, have gotten the same kind of notorious? variety and um would it have been as funny if it was the other way around so i think there's kind of pros and cons to it but i do think overall what uber did was quite hilarious but i do question like i look at it from the intersections like would this have been as funny from someone else that's all
3: did you think it was funny Stephen? i think it's genius i think it's absolute genius and it shows us up for the frauds that we all are you know i mean you turn up and start talking you you know you walk into the BBC reception and say, "Yes, I'm here to talk about so and so." You'll be you'll be on the air in ten minutes. That's more and, or less what happened, isn't it?
0: So yeah. the, his proxy strode into Wogan House, and ten minutes later yeah. was talking to Vanessa Feltz on the Jeremy Vine show. Exactly.
3: I mean, and, and this is the thing, you know, a desperate researcher will book anybody in a or, or pick up anybody in a in a sort of rush. And I think that the, this guy is the fact that he's, he's faked TripAdvisor and he's faked all these kind of things just shows it all up for the sort of the the bonfire of vanities that it is, you know. And it's it's more of this please
0: but what is the alternative though because you know on the production budget even of a radio 2 talk show never mind a local radio show or a commercial radio show you can't have the researchers journalistically investigating the identities of people to see if they who no. they purport to be I mean you have to take someone's word for it if they no no, you, no I mean you, you know
3: the whole thing the whole basis of, of, of this industry is trust you know you speak to somebody on the phone or you have an email or whatever but but that's that, that can be ex- exploited and the other thing of course is that most people are sort of what they say or where they're coming from can be just as as fake as anything else even if they are who they say they are you know what I mean i mean the biggest problem with with to my mind when i look at things like news and stuff like that is they get so many people on just to, to, for another voice or another opinion. They don't actually do any journalism. And this comes into the, the story we're going to cover later on. But that idea of real journalism versus just noise. And so this is what this guy is doing. He's exploiting that that desperate sort of uh, uh, desire to just fill airtime with anything. And therefore, you know, if you're a good talker, you can get on and do anything. I mean, there's been pranksters like this for, for years. You know, there used to be tele pranksters. You know, there used to be people that went on and, told fake stories. It was, You know, Ali G started like this. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's lots and lots of... of so to me, it's a, it's a great comic tradition. And the more they can send up, you know, post face journalists, the better.
0: But the benefit for Vice of all of this is they get some fun articles about it, which themselves will rate. Yeah. Um. But is he telling us anything we don't know? I mean, because within the media industry, as Stephen says, we know it works on trust. We know you can make it on to... Uh, the Jeremy Vine show maybe the general public don't know that maybe he genuinely is exposing something that people aren't aware of
1: and I think that's a good thing because we do need more transparent news and I think what this has shown is just how chaotic media is and like Stephen said it is a bit of a farce when you think about it and he has exploited that, which I think is a little bit terrible on his part, but it's really funny. So, you kind of, it's a really tough one to balance. But I do think the general public should be aware that, you know, sometimes the things that they're seeing and reading aren't always entirely accurate or well researched. So, it does kind of probe for further inspection.
0: Well, that, that's the thing that we talk about in this show quite a lot the extent to which the general public don't realize that the mainstream news agenda, even if it's verified, even within the BBC, is constructed often of sometimes quite junior people reading press releases mm-hmm. and constructing the news, saying this is what's happening today. Mm-hmm. The general public still don't
3: quite have a hold on that. There's, there's there's no there's no depth anymore because no one's got time for the depth. You know when you see an article, I mean, I, you know, I used to read like six seven newspapers a day. Now I read non-stop news stories on my phone, and what gets ridiculous is when you see a, a story come up and it says a four minute read, and even I'll go. Ugh.
2: You know what I mean? Because it's like, oh, it's
3: four minutes too much. You know, yeah. I'd rather just take the clickbait headline. Yeah. And this is the just problem. that fat
0: guy at the microwave saying, quicker. Yeah, exactly.
3: <laughs> that was me this morning. Um, but basically, this, this sort of, you know, this, the, the, it's the shallowness of the media and the, and the sort of the, the, I mean, I hate to use the word fake news because that, that's sort of Trump's kind of mantra. But there is a touch of that, the sort of the transparency is there if you push hard enough. This guy is obviously, you know, telling young people, this, this is what you can do. You know, you can sort of uh, manipulate the media to your own ends. That's a good thing. You know, I'm all for the sort of revolutionary aspect of it. The fact it's funny as well, brilliant, but it's also a really sort of terrible indictment about how terrible our news industry is and how, how, how just how poorly res- research constructed... You know, it can kind of it can be, but there's a generational
0: thing here as well, because it's all very well saying, well, yeah, if I'm 150, <laughs> right, right? <laughs> <laughs> saying journalists should go out and meet people and they should find their own stories and they should know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. But it's not just lack of resource; it's a generational thing because a lot of journalists coming into the newsroom from universities don't even pick up the phone. Mm. You no. know, they like to do everything online because they live online. Mm-hmm. And what this journalist is flagging up, or this prankster, whatever you want to call him, is that there are inherent risks to that.
1: Yeah, because we don't pick up the phone. Everything I've been invited for has been over email. And usually the email is a great verifying tool. It's usually really effective, except for in this on this occasion. But I think there's a difference between um, them just getting it wrong and someone deliberately exploiting that. Uh, there's not that many cases of Uber's... As, as far as we know, there's not too many cases of But that, there's plenty so of people pretending
0: fine. that they've seen a news event and, on Twitter. You know. Oh,
1: definitely. I've definitely pretended to watch something that I haven't.
0: Yeah, and some of those get on air, don't they? <laughs> yeah. No, but seriously, they do. I know you're joking. <laughs> but, that, you know, if you're in a news environment yeah. and you're looking for a hashtag and someone puts a prank on that's what makes it on air if people aren't Especially doing if it it's a big,
3: a big news story like you know Grenfell something like that exactly. as terrible as that hundreds of fraudsters turn up and want to want to say i was there i lived there whatever i mean it's it's that sort of one of the biggest problems is ge- journalists should be should be more cynical than they are they should be more uh, you know uh, that's the message we want to hear <laughs> isn't it well i mean it sounds terrible <laughs> but you know they should be they should be pushing and and being you know don't just accept the first opinion the first person do you see what I mean I mean I'm talking to the young media students who don't use the phone at this point nobody nobody else it's that thing of you know you you, you know you're we we're, we've evolved to be able to tell if somebody's lying when we can hear their voices you can't tell if someone's lying on an email or a text and maybe to some extent, people don't care it's content and it's it's gone it's
0: done
1: yeah this will be over in like a like today probably yeah to See, to I'm honest. crying
3: now, there's tears running down my face uh, Ollie's pure, cold-hearted <laughs> cynicism uh, on, on which let's move
0: on to the other story that you alluded to which is the uh, former Times and BBC man James Harding and his new slow news venture uh, They've smashed their fundraising target of £75,000 uh, As we checked this morning, they'd raised over £130,000 on Kickstarter uh, This is Tortoise uh, Imreal tell us about the ethos behind Tortoise Media
1: So the whole thing is about open journalism, news when it's ready, not when it's just come out. They want to take a full, I guess, bird's eye view of everything that's happening on the landscape and then tell the story once they've got all the facts. Yes, and presumably not speak to
0: proxies of people that they're reporting on.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Basically fact-checking everything. Um, And they have like think-ins, they want to do live events and they want to do loads of different things. You're going to have
0: to define think-ins.
1: I'm trying really hard. It sounds like question time. So basically people, there's like a panel on editor talking about the news that they care about, and then having other people's opinions from like the regular public, I imagine, also chiming in on the subject.
0: Yeah, as far as I can work out, the, the offer is if you back this project, Stephen, you can turn up to basically what is their daily news conference. Mm. Pretty much, yeah. So actually, I, a lot of listeners to this show would probably quite like to be at a news conference <laughs> with James Harding, but I'm not sure that really appeals
3: to the general public. The general public, no, because they're not, not interested, but the message of, of, of this uh, startup yes you know again it's this thing of real news proper anal- analysis proper depth proper context i think context is the biggest problem with with the fast uh, clickbait world you know because so many things you look at and you go that headline says this and you read the first paragraph well the story's actually completely the opposite the context is different that mm-hmm. you know it's it, so somebody pushing this as a new message sounds great whether you'll make, make money out of it i don't know again i found a horrible old granny in the corner here but um, but the other thing, I sh- uh, you know, all the newspapers and all the news channels should be doing this anyway.
0: Well, you there's know. an argument
3: that they are. Though. Are they? You know, really? I mean, if
0: you look at Huff Poe, if you look at the Guardian long reads, if you look at the Atlantic, there are serious pieces. There are serious pieces on Buzzfeed, aren't there? That are thousands of words long and have proper investigative journalism. It's just they're surrounded by crap. <laughs> but I mean, you know, all these all these trusted brands do do serious journalism too. You just yeah. need to know how to look for it.
1: Yeah. I when I read the the story I just thought isn't this just a magazine personally I don't understand the difference um, I get that they have like a really lovely ethos and message behind it but I don't see how this is any different from like the publications you mentioned The Atlantic doesn't really phenomenal work um, so I don't I don't really I get it but I also don't get it, and I don't know why this is so different or so special from anything else that's out there, especially for people that very rarely check in with the news like myself.
0: I mean, the simplicity of the app that they're suggesting, it seems a bit similar to what The Economist has done and mm-hmm. what Yahoo did with Sumly, which is basically you get five stories, that's it, mm-hmm. there's a finite limit on it. There is a human appetite for that, mm-hmm. isn't there? Which I've- is weird in this world of ever-scrolling things,
3: but you just want to know you've completed your reading for the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've had a few of these things where they send, you know, a few stories and whatever and a few uh, curated stories. Mm. And then, of course, they start to annoy me because they're curating something about Northern Ireland or sport, both of which I'm not interested in that day, say, you know, and I want more entertainment or more whatever, foreign or something. And so, I don't know, it's it's, the more news, the better if it's good news, not not good news, that awful sort of happy news, but uh, (laughs) properly quality news, quality reporting, quality analysis. But who knows how long this is going to last. Do you believe them that this fundraising target that they've
0: achieved is kind of genuinely on the surface level on Kickstarter? Like it appears to be like, oh, we've set this target and oh, we've exceeded it in three days. Or is that just how you have to do Kickstarter now?
1: I think that's just the trick of Kickstarter. Yeah. In any crowdfunding, you've usually lined up everyone that's going to give you some money. And so you then mean, it do you mean it's it. fake? Oh yeah! Oh, like no. you, there's so many ways to game a Kickstarter. You don't just launch salt. it out the blue. You actually have to have your donors lined up, and then you say we're going live on this day. But isn't that weird? But it's how it works now. And then you basically you have to your biggest kickstarter days are your first day and you're lost so you have to line everyone up and then when people you go officially live online um, you have some traction so then people then start donating like oh this is a real thing you have to game it it's not (laughs) it's very rarely organic but that psychological
0: weakness in us (laughs) that we only want to get involved in supporting something that we think enough people already like that it's got its funding goal anyway is really weird like the whole idea should be oh, they're they're £30,000 short Mm. I can help with the tenner but instead (laughs) people are like they're a hundred grand over their budget yeah. so, so I'll donate I'll yeah. keep giving some money it yeah. must be worth it it's bizarre isn't it
1: it is a little bit bizarre but it's how it works now
0: do you think it is a credible way though to launch a business I mean James Harding you know c- could have gone to other routes and has chosen to go to the public
1: um yeah, he could have done. I think he's a very well-connected man and probably some of those donors are very credible people. It's what, 700, well, when I checked last night, it was 700 and something backers, which is quite a lot even for Kickstarter. Um, he could have got a different route, but I think there's something novel in going to Kickstarter and making it seem like really down-to-earth and startup-y and youthful and hip, um, despite, I guess, the board being somewhat older than probably the millennial generation. So it's an interesting route. i, I I'm curious to see where it goes, but I'm probably not going to be the main consumer for this. Well, probably I
0: not at I... £250 a year. I mean, I know yeah. that is less than it used to cost to get a quality newspaper every day, but it's mm. a lot of money. It feels like a lot of money now. If you're the kind of person who donates to The Guardian, I'm guessing mm. you're donating 30 quid a year, not 250 250 quid does sound a
3: lot. Uh, is it worth it? Ugh.
1: I pay about £5 a month Mail for a black women subscription, so... And they usually send me a newsletter every Sunday that I read and I check in once in a while. But I do that because I want to support black women in journalism. And that is kind of the key reason why I pay that money.
0: Well, would you? Well, this—that's interesting. The question is, would you spend seven pounds rather than five?
1: Yeah, because I could have spent ten. Exactly. Um, but so but I, I spent guess five. the idea.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. I guess the idea, and I see this myself with the businesses that I run online, is that if you have an online subscription or a donation platform, once you've got someone over the threshold of being willing to give you money, the actual amount sort of doesn't matter. Someone who'll give you three pounds will give you four. It's just that most people don't give you anything at all. See mm-hmm, I stopped paying for true. pornography on the same argument. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Years.
3: Yeah ago I realized I didn't have to keep paying so you know. Well you can, you're paying you with find, your data Stephen you can find and I've got a full list spring. here of everything you've been watching
0: <laughs> <laughs> we'll pour over that during this commercial break
3: Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award winning movie Poor Things starring Emma Stone Mark Ruffalo and Willem Dafoe Check out the new documentary Freaknik The Wildest Party Never Told about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.
2: Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away.
0: time for some media news in brief now. Imriel and Stephen are still with me and actor Riz Ahmed has been reframing the conversation around diversity again this week. Uh, He's been urging the industry to stop talking and start showing real representation of underserved groups. Uh, Imriel, do you agree with this distinction between uh, diversity and representation? Some people think that sounds like the same thing.
1: Yeah, honestly, I love Riz Ahmed. I think he's fantastic. Um, And he's made some really great points and great strides in in film especially around the conversation on inclusion and representation personally i think they sound like one in the same and they will become interchangeable buzzwords just like inclusion has now become has replaced diversity representation is going to replace diversity and they all mean the same thing i guess the distinction in what he means is about wholly representing people in that they actually get center stage when they're in these stories so instead of it being about batman it could be about whoever who is black in Batman, I have no idea. I was to say, Batman's white. Bad, this is a bad example. <laughs> yeah. um, because, no, because I think that's the point he was making, is that when we're talking about diversity in film, we're talking about we still have white leads, mm. um, and then we have maybe the side characters might be brown or of colour or LGBTQ or maybe disabled, which almost never happens. Um, so he's talking about that instead of it being the sprinkling in the background, how about we actually have... People at the front um, leading these stories, and that is slowly happening in Hollywood. We're seeing those big changes with Black Panther, uh, Wrinkle in Time, even the new Hate You Give movie. So we're starting to see that kind of shift where we're telling these stories, and people are being represented. But I think overall it's just a term now it's going to be interchangeable with diversity I I don't know the difference
0: do you I mean Stephen you're making a show for Channel 4 at Mm. the moment they make a big song and dance about diversity they certainly do should they be talking about representation rather than this tokenistic kind of let's make sure we have a sprinkling of basically non-white faces should they be saying Every show we make should be representative of the country. Well, yes, absolutely. They should.
3: They should be. The problem is whether, if they don't say the word diversity, which, well, I mean, <laughs> if they don't physically put it in the contract yeah. and, you know, threaten you, this has to be a diverse cast or diverse whatever, there's a risk that you will make a show without anybody mm-hmm. in it. That's the problem. And, and this is the diversity is a sort of horrible word. The, the one I hate even more is BAME, you know, which we now use in telly all the time. BAME, BAME, BAME. Oh, it's a BAME person, it's a BAME person. But it should be about representation. It should be about it just it, well. It should be nothing really. It should be just natural. That's the thing. These people should be in, uh, no matter what they are, if they're any good. But that diversity thing is at least keeping you focused to do it. You know, there are there are lots of monitoring now with things like you know who, who's on the production team. Who you know you do have to work at it. So that kind of does work as a kind of you know slightly what's the word? Um, uh, I mean, it's, you know, it's a rule we have to follow but it should be natural it should be it should be completely second nature and we shouldn't be thinking in sort of those kind of rigid terms but I think we still have to at this stage
0: I mean I guess the problem with monitoring who's on screen just focusing on that rather than behind the scenes is if you're box ticking you're looking at quantity not quality so mm. you know I mean Andy Peters is on Good Morning Britain every day but he ain't presenting the show <laughs> he, is he? he? he gets to do the competition VT oh nice I saw so, it this morning yeah he's very good at it mm. but I mean you know that means they have a black face on Good Morning Britain every 15 minutes I mean, but that's,
3: that's that, not that, what really the what viewers like no, see that—that yeah. that is the problem with with TV. You see, quite often you somebody go, oh, we and then so and so. And you go, and you know exactly when. You can see see when you see programs go out. You can see the the, the box tick cast person, mm-hmm. you know. And you can, and quite often it's really clunky. You know what I mean? It's like someone will suddenly wheel in in a wheelchair, and you go, aha, They found that disabled actor, or whatever. Or, well, that's thing, and it's know.
0: educating the audience in a way not to be thinking that, isn't it, real? Because you do, you can't help as a viewer. I mean, the the thing that was written about a lot recently in relation to Bodyguard and other TV dramas of that type is increasingly. For all the right reasons, we're seeing more black and Asian actors playing police officers mm-hmm. in these nice. shows. But actually, you know, as as a, as a reflection of reality, we see report after report saying the police are too white and there aren't black and Asian officers <laughs> at a senior level. And yet it seems like every boss in the TV dramas is from an ethnic minority. There's a yeah. gap there, a perception I th- gap.
1: I think... The thing about that, though, and I think why those things are good, is that seeing is believing. So when young black children are watching these shows or teenagers are watching these shows, they can see themselves as a police officer not being arrested. Yeah. Um, so they can see that as a viable option for them. So I think it's just as important that we actually, what media should be doing and what entertainment should be doing is helping people kind of shape the future. Um, it's meant to be aspirational in some ways, depending on the show. And so I think it is important that we have stories that, even if it doesn't reflect our everyday reality, it should show a version of the future that we can hope for. Um, So yeah, that's why that's important. But uh, diversity in general, in UK TV, it's just so shockingly bad. That I don't have a lot of hope for it. And you, like, like Stephen said, you can really see when they just try to tick a box. And we know when we're not being accurately represented. Um, and I think that's the difference is that you can tell, we can tell the difference. Whether the producer or whoever's behind the show can tell the difference doesn't matter because usually they're a white face and they're not going to think about it in the same way that I'm going to think about it when I see this black woman. I'm like, that doesn't ring true for me. That does, that's not my yeah. experience or that's not anyone I know's experience. So I think there is a, a wider conversation to be had. But I think also, it is just as important that we have those faces behind the camera um, and in the writing rooms and on the production teams because there's more chance that those stories get better and accurately reflected.
0: OK, on to another hot-button issue now, working for free. <laughs> uh, a Scottish Woo! Member of Parliament... <laughs> our, our two guests on the media podcast are laughing, I don't know why. Uh, a Scottish <laughs> Member of Parliament has revealed that two teams at the BBC were asking freelancers to do an unpaid shift before they got hired. Uh, Stephen, Tony Hall has now come out and said this will not happen again at the
3: BBC. Do you believe him? I want to believe him because it's outrageous. It absolutely is outrageous. And for something like the BBC to be caught doing this is it's just incredible because, you know, what do we have a BBC for? Um, you know, they have to... They're supposed to be properly, you know, uh, the, the most sort of uh, fair hiring policies, etc., etc. If they're bringing in people and they're not paying them, That's pure exploitation. Uh, You know, you'd expect that of a sort of, you know, some sort of sleazy backstreet place that's not making any money. Not the BBC. So I suppose
0: (laughs) if you're finding a justification for this in real, it would be that the BBC is a huge bureaucratic monster of a place. Mm -hmm. And if you're just a middle management producer with the authority to give someone a job, but not the authority to actually make that happen and do all the paperwork... The easy way to try someone out is, say, come in for a day, shadow us, see if you fit. There's nothing wrong with that motivation, is there?
1: I mean, I'm actually entirely unsurprised by this story because I felt like that's a very normal phenomenon. Um, I know loads of people that work for free for massive corporations, so I... I'm not surprised by this story at all. Um, it is outrageous, but I think at the same time, it does make sense. If someone wants to work for the BBC and they want to get their foot in the door, I can see why people would say yes to that opportunity and risk not being paid. What really is shocking, though, is that they are established freelancers. So generally speaking, they actually know what they're doing and have been paid in the past for that skill. Um, so that the fact that they're not paying them is a bit of a a kick in the face
3: Ollie your your argument works if they're media students or they're 21 or something like that and you literally would say come in do a day see if it works we'll see if you work you don't get them to run the show write the scripts and, and then not be able to get a cab home at midnight that's yeah, that's the detail of what that's the... that's the problem. The, cu- the culture of freelance working, the culture of working for nothing, uh, of work experience, I should say, is absolutely vital. And every single person in the media has done work be- over, over and above the, the hours and certainly worked for free. But you've always done it on the proviso you're going to get something back. This sounds like just pure, let's get them in for free not pay them.
0: But if the BBC made a rod for their own backs by having such complicated recruitment procedures in the first place where they favour people that already work for the BBC and there's all kinds of complications, that actually, again, I can just imagine from the producer's point of view, this is a way of getting someone in so they've got experience so they can apply for the job. You know, they might not even be allowed to apply if they're a freelancer.
3: Yeah, I think you're you're starting to make it sound more complicated than it really is. I mean, you, you know, if you're a producer and you need a researcher, a producer, whatever, somebody to come in you will have a budget, you will have a line in a budget, you'll have a production manager to go through that. It's not so haphazard that you don't know what you're doing. I mean, that's the whole point of TV and radio and whatever. It's it's rigidly sort of adhered to and, and, and constructed. So this sort of idea that we can just bring in people for nothing and no one knows... Is a complete misnomer. I mean, everybody should know. The producer always knows. You know what I mean. You always know who's working on a show. Mm. So the idea you're not paying them, you know, you've made that decision, or that you've, you've crossed that sort of rubicon. I'm not going to pay these people, and I'm going to, you know, get as much free work. That is that's horrible. And not passing the blame onto
0: the victim here, but the problem is that freelancers will say yes to this because they want the work. That's the imbalance of power, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's a massive injustice, uh, but also. Yeah, I can understand. It depends on on the freelancer, to be honest, because sometimes you just want the BBC on your CV. So you are, as a freelancer, they have complete autonomy as to what jobs they take, and it is a judgment call. Will me doing this mean I can get work later on that does pay me double what I'm currently getting? Probably. So it's not a blaming the victim because the BBC absolutely should not be exploiting people's labour, but at the same time, these freelancers are making that judgment for themselves. So... Who
0: knows? Okay, let's talk about one of the big podcast launches of the week. On the last edition of this show, uh, Steve Ackerman from Something Else, who was on our panel, hinted that they were about to launch a new kind of podcast format. We now know what that is. They've created what they claim is the first structured reality podcast uh, following TOWIE's Lydia Bright. Do you know who that is, Stephen? I do. Okay, good. Unfortunately, I'm guessing in real you don't because you don't watch television. Do you? I do do know who she is. How she passed your radar.
1: I did watch TOWIE for the first three seasons. Okay, was wow. in it.
0: Okay. <laughs> well, you both know a lot more about this than me. Um I was actually hoping when he pitched that to us last week that it might be It wasn't last week, was it? Fucking fortnightly shows. I was actually secretly hoping when he was explaining that to us on the last edition that it might be the Moffats he was working with. Now that I would w- listen to. Yeah,
1: that would be cool. That would be good,
0: wouldn't it? I'd that listen to a show good. about the Moffats. Uh, But I've not I've not heard of this woman. So why should why should I be uh, downloading this podcast? I absolutely
1: real? don't think you should, personally. I listened to the trailer and I I was like I will never listen to this ever a day in my life. Why? <laughs> One, um, I stopped watching Towie because people were getting on my nerves. Um, I find them actually really annoying as people, but I understand that the general public really loves that. So it's probably going to be a very successful show, but it just doesn't sound that interesting. And she has a really jarring voice, and it is audio. Uh, so that's a lot, to Stephen. Deal with.
0: What do you think of the idea of taking a, basically taking the format of a reality TV show and
3: making it into a, an audio podcast? Do you think that can work? I think it's the end of days. <laughs> I really do. I think when I when I listened to the the Brights, as we should call it, I thought it was horrific, it's and it was horrible. basically like being turning the screen off and listening to your tawey. And then trying to work out who's actually talking. I mean, it it just made me think, why is anybody going to listen to this? Who's that desperate for an extra slice of TOWIE that they'll then tune into a podcast with some sort of TOWIE wannabes? Uh, You know, 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 the ambition, the changing nature of podcasts is all very good, but I don't think this is the one we're going to sort of, you know... ...say is the game changer for all, all life but from now on.
0: I mean, it, yeah. the way they've recorded the show, I was talking to Steve a bit about this off mic last time, is exactly in the style of a reality TV show. So they have, you know, embedded microphones into their living room. So they've given them essentially bullet points of these are the things you're going to talk about, but it's genuinely unscripted and they don't know what they're going to say. They've tried to do all that sort of innovative stuff for the podcast space... Do you think at the end of the day, actually, the podcast people want to hear are ones like this, where three people sit in a room and chat, or, uh, you know, the structured American style true story type shows? Those are essentially the two types of show that are rating.
1: Yeah, I think there's a place for reality podcasts, and I think it's an exciting development because I would probably listen to a reality podcast just not this one um, I think it's going to come down to who who the audience is and who's who's it for what are you making this reality show for why kind of rehash something that I can get on TV with visuals I just think it's probably just the poor choice of talent in this occasion it feels like a really wasted opportunity no offence to Steve which probably sounds really offensive so sorry um, but I think it's just it's a weird choice I just can't I can't get over why they've chosen that family. I don't think they're that interesting. They're not the most interesting people on the show either. So mm. it kind of, yeah, like you said, it was a, it's a bunch of wannabes trying to kind of jump into the podcast space. But I think reality in podcasting can be very, very interesting with the right talent.
0: And we do see the danger here as well, Stephen, of using celebrity to promote your new podcast. On the one hand, it's kind of essential, you know, especially something else they are... A production company that exists to make a profit so they're looking for a sponsor on this they need numbers mm-hmm. but on the other hand you know i've been making podcasts for over 10 years now your first 12 13 14 shows are usually quite bad compared to what the show then becomes and mm. all eyes all ears are
3: like emril said on the trailer mm-hmm. it's a bit unfair it, it's very unfair i mean they are really juggling all the balls in the air at the same time and it doesn't look good as in the trailer doesn't make anybody go, wow, that's amazing, that's innovative, that's whatever. It just feels like they've recorded an off-air TOWIE and they've put it on a C90 cassette tape and playing it in the back of the radio or something. It's a bit mm, eggy, I think the technical term is. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) not
0: a success on the jukebox jury for that one. Sorry, Steve. Uh, Okay, let's move on to uh, social network Google+. Plus. Remember them? I (laughs) know. I didn't know it was still a thing. Um, It's not. (laughs) Well, it's not. That is indeed the news story. Thank you, Imreel, for bringing us back down to earth. Uh, They have closed to the public amid reports of a huge data breach. But Google Plus for Business has now been expanded with new tools. Uh, Imreel, is this just Google now, you know, having failed to chase Facebook, trying to chase Slack?
1: Probably. And I just think it's not going to work. I think they should just let Google Plus go. It's been dead for a few years. Um, Even when I was working in marketing, it was a really slow burn to try and make that happen. And I think for business, there's always an opportunity in business tools because everyone's always chasing the new productivity tool, the thing that makes their employees kind of connect with them in a human way. And they've got like community features and network features. But then it kind of just just go to LinkedIn I don't understand I don't really get why they've done this but it's Google and they can do what they like so well I mean obviously
0: Google Stephen are not going to be that keen on telling everybody to go to LinkedIn since no. it's owned by Microsoft I mean <laughs> tells you why they want a product in this space but do you think it can work for them
3: I have no idea
0: what but, do you use like
3: in, I mean, in your I business I, I read their sort of you know the, the pitch or whatever and all I could think was, who, who's going to do this? Who's going to be at work and go, ooh, I can't wait to chat to somebody in the next office rather than either phone them or email them or text them or just go and talk to them? You know what I mean? What, who are these businesses that need a sort of slightly bizarre social media construct to, to, to somehow function better well I
0: suppose the answer to that is American corporations where they have thousands of people working for them perhaps uh, in maybe. different retail I mean, stores you know if you've got 8,000
3: employees in yeah. 25 different countries then but you can uh, I didn't use the thing an old fashioned term called the intranet and all that kind of stuff they'd have company versions of those yeah or, well that is kind of what this is isn't it why does anybody that? need a new one you know what I mean is anybody crying out for this it sounds like Google we would have to, to invite to... the employees
0: of KFC onto the show to tell us. But. <laughs>
1: but there's like Google Groups, like they have other products that are stronger and more effective at doing this. So I don't understand. Like, I mean, I'm part of like the UK uh, audio network which works very effectively at sending me tons of emails with updates from tons of producers. And I get all of the kind of digests, and I know what's going on. I'm part of other Google group lists and they come straight to my inbox, which I check regularly. I'm not going to go out of my way to check Google Plus to find out what some employee in like America is doing. I'm just not going to do it. It's a weird, weird thing.
0: OK, look, I agree with you. The brand is dead. Yeah. But the platform, I mean, I thought I didn't need Slack and I thought I didn't need WhatsApp, and I now use both for business all the time.
1: I definitely felt like I needed WhatsApp. I've always wanted that. But, I mean, Slack is a weird I've one, too. I've that. always wanted I was it.
3: born wanting WhatsApp. <laughs> I,
0: yeah,
1: I've definitely always wanted a WhatsApp. I was but. born
3: Slack. I had to have a n- numerous surgeries <laughs> to correct it. I do think Slack
1: has done a really phenomenal job in kind of revolutionising how people work, especially remotely. But then there's Slack, so why is Google... Like, sometimes I just think companies should just let the competitors just have it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes. Because they do search really well. They do so many things exceptionally well. They've got YouTube. Like, what more do you need? Just let Google Plus go. Yeah, there
0: was a great piece, actually, in Business Insider. I don't know if you saw it, where they showed that essentially every time one of the Google executives or former executives wants to make a statement, they use Twitter. (laughs) Thankfully, that says it all. There is just time for our media quiz.
1: Woo! Yay!
0: I'm going to read you a headline about one of the autumn's big TV shows. You're going to tell me what the missing word is. Uh, so when you know the answer, you buzz in with your name. So Stephen, you will say... Stephen. And Imriel, you will say... Imriel. Ready? Yes. No. Here's headline number one. Strictly's Sean Walsh and Katia Jones look what... As they leave rehearsals after ruling out another sexy dance in wake of Kiss scandal. St- oh. Ooh. Oh, this I is probably, so much. No, well. I heard the ST before I heard the I. I don't Steven,
1: know. Stephen, the, the point is
0: yours. What's the missing word? Guilty no Imran sheepish oh. It is neither the answer is smug oh yeah smug well, that's that would have been a good one uh, that was according to the Daily Mail who have been reporting on the latest so called strict every curse,
3: single day
0: every minute of every day um do you think the BBC milked that gossip for ratings, Imriel? Or do you think it was the tabloids genuinely interested in it?
1: I genuinely found out this story yesterday. So um, how? Where have you been?
0: I don't seriously. Watch TV. It's everywhere. It doesn't matter. It's everywhere.
3: Look, I'm going to take over the BBC. Please. I think we're genuinely worried about this. Properly worried because we all kind of loved it in a sort of from our position. The, the weird thing is the whole show is predicated on who's shagging who all the time you know <laughs> Claudia will make reference to it the judges will say oh I see such chemistry blah blah you know mm. that is what the, the, the you know the, the whole it's, it's subtext isn't it well it's a subtext it but it's there it all the time out, yeah. and the fact that it's, it suddenly crossed over and it was overt meant everyone looked embarrassed it's like walking in on your mum and dad having sex <laughs> or something. it felt very very embarrassing and a bit weird and that's what the BBC were genuinely worried about because they've never had this situation happen mm-hmm. they've had loads and loads of curses mm-hmm. and couples coupling up afterwards and things like that I mean they banned some of the Strictly Dancers because they were coupling up every series with their, their celebrity talent but this one was a genuine you know I, I, I know that they were worried and they were so desperately worried last Saturday when it came out uh, when the show came out because they tried to make it look like it was so innocuous they were standing mm-hmm. far apart they were it was a, it was a very very weird
0: scenario I'd ask you how you would have managed it if you were editing Strictly in Real, but I'm guessing you're not going to have a ready answer for that one.
1: Definitely don't, know. Nope. Have, have
0: you ever watched the show?
1: No. no. I watched no. it that one time. They had the South African dancer. She was black. She was really cool. <laughs> okay. She did a really great job.
0: <laughs> Fine. Uh, here's headline number two. Voice boxes at the ready. We have a female Doctor Who. Now we need to see what on TV. Buzz me with your name when you know the answer. Uh, Stephen. Stephen. A Dalek. I don't know. <laughs> I'm trying to stick with the Doctor Who theme here. Daleks are well catered for on Doctor Who, I believe. Okay. Imriel, would you like to steal this from under Stephen? We have a female Doctor Who now. We need to see what on TV? A
1: slipper?
0: It, what? I don't know. Jesus. I'm so uh, bad at this. Uh, older women, uh, according to an op ed from
3: filmmaker Nikki Clark. <laughs> older oh, yeah, They don't exist. <laughs> Women disappear. It's like Logan's Run. They disappear when they're like 45. We never see them again. Actually, in Doctor Who, though, and actually I watch
0: Doctor Who as much as I watch (laughs) Strictly, but... in Doctor Who, there have been older women, haven't there? I mean, not playing yeah. the central role, sure, but I've, yeah, got, I'm sure I've seen... Yeah, 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 they've definitely had them. It's not and the Catherine most...
3: Catherine Tate, for one, who counts as an older woman. Does she, yeah. You know, I mean, wait, she's that's, not, that, well, not that's under 30. Exactly, what, it? Counts, what counts,
0: counts as an older,
1: women? Women? Exactly, counts counts exactly, as an older woman is the interesting conversation, is You know,
3: anybody who's over 30 is essentially prehistoric in TV terms.
1: Yeah. yeah. And they've had Great. lots
3: of characters playing older women, strong characters as well.
0: In Barbie have announced they're making a doll version of the new Doctor Who. Is that a cause for celebration?
1: I read that... At first, I thought, "Well, that sounds nice," and then I read the dialogue on the Guardian where they were like, "Oh, it took like five seconds for her to, to for them to morph her body and make her unrealistic." Um, so, I mean, I think it's cool. I, I'm not going to overthink a child's toy too much and be all feminist about it. Yes, it's quite nice that they've made a Doctor Who doll.
0: Okay, <laughs> headline number three. Okay. I suppose we can call this the deciding one. I'd like one of you to get a point. <laughs> Here are the reasons people are accusing the X Factor of being what? Fake. Oh, sorry. I should have said my name. Stephen. Oh, yeah, you could have stolen that, couldn't you? Damn it. Uh, oh, no, I know what the word is. Yeah. Rigged. You're so close, but it's not. Oh, come on. Yeah, come oh, on. Synonym for rigged or faked. Fixed. Yes, it is Uh, fixed. Oh, what? Imriel, you could have totally jumped in there. I
1: really was trying to think of synonyms.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yes, fixed. After footage of contestants being sent back to economy class after being filmed in business, Uh, fans have also complained about favouritism. This is uh, Louis Tomlinson choosing the bloke that
3: he knows and helped support through rehab. Stephen, are you surprised by any of this? no. Uh, Shocked and saddened, yes, that it's still coming out, that they're (laughs) they're so inept in their producing that this kind of stuff is is then leaked out because it just makes us all look bad. But obviously, you know they do not pay for business class for six wannabes or whatever. They put them in economy. Well, the, the, I think know. what was
0: interesting, they didn't pay for anything.
3: So it was Aer Lingus were, well, yeah. were doing it in return for some screen time. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it, they the should have said no. We want first class seats. Yeah. We're going to film them in first class. Well, they, <laughs> they should, and Aer Lingus should really have stumped up for it. But yeah. um, but no, just it just looks tacky. It, all of that stuff looks ta- more tacky. And one of the, the, the worst things about the X Factor is they build it up so great that they're going to go to the judges' houses, or it's going to be somewhere exotic, it's going to be amazing, and then they cast them aside, uh, like, you know, and, and they're essentially rubbish in the street. You know why, why give them this sort of fake, uh, what's the word, rise to, to glory? You know, it, nobody gets it all. You know what I mean? They're supposed to be, well, you know, they, they talk about it not being a singing competition and all that rubbish, but you know, it's supposed to be an idea that this is what's coming. Mm. It's a monstrous pit of hell. And I'm underselling it there, by the way. Well, (laughs) you know. Did you used to love it, though? Because I used to love it. I really used to love it. Yeah. So it's been. Really involved. I stopped watching it two years ago. I watched the auditions. I always used to watch the auditions, and two years ago I stopped watching the live shows. Mm. And then this year I tuned in for the first episode to see the new judges, and then that was it. Didn't bother. I just Robbie I, Williams in his pyjamas put it's, me off. It's just over, isn't it? And it's. I yeah. understand it's difficult for ITV if they let it go. Channel yeah.
0: Five will buy it, you know. But it's just, just you know let
3: them. ITV should be you know girding their loins and getting a new show. There's going to be a new show, a new format out there. Mm. They've probably had a million dollar format turned down three or four times now because they cannot let the X Factor go. It's Like Big Brother, you know, Channel 4 were very brave when they let it go after ten years. Channel 5 had a good run with it, but it's not a question of let's keep it going forever. It is dying. You know, it's it's horrible. It sort of it has that kind of, like, the whiff of a corpse on air.
1: Oh, gosh. You know?
3: Is that too much?
0: <laughs> no, I think it's a perfect note on which to end. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you uh, to our guest, Imriel Morgan, and our quiz winner with one word after being prompted three times, <laughs> Stephen D. Wright. Uh, if you like what we're up to here on the Media Podcast and you want to help us keep making it, then consider taking out a voluntary subscription, just like Millie Lenehan has done. Thank you, Millie. Uh, if you would like a shout out next time, head to themediapodcast.com slash donate and select an amount to keep us going all year round. And remember, you can catch up with our previous episodes and get new ones as soon as they're released by subscribing for free on our website, themediapodcast.com. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Rebecca Grisdale. Sherry, the Media Podcast is a PPM production. Until next time, bye bye.